If you will turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, as we continue our journey through the gospel of Luke, we begin chapter 9 this morning. We will be looking at the first nine verses. The title of my sermon is The Apostles' Mission and the Curiosity of Herod. Our key words for our worshipers in training are apostle, dust, and Herod. I was thinking this week of one of the one of the great joys of parenting for me, and that is being able to teach our children new things and to watch them develop in those things. And eventually to hear them say, sometimes a bit with a bit of obstinance, I can do it by myself. And as hard as that is sometimes for us to hear, and I especially think for mothers, it's a really good thing to hear that. It's good for our children to develop skills and to gain confidence so that we can eventually, as many of you have experienced already, send them out of the nest. Now, of course, the first few times they try to put on their clothes by themselves, they're backwards. Maybe the shoes are on the wrong feet. Their socks are inside out. But through these mistakes, they're learning, they're growing, they're developing. That's a good thing. And as we think about that, consider the fact that our children have a trust in us that is absolute. All of our answers to all of their many why questions are the truth to them. So when we're teaching them how to do various things, in their little minds, that's exactly how it's to be done. That's a, it's a sobering thought to me, especially when I see and hear things coming from my children and I cringe, only to realize that they're mimicking me. A child's trust is so absolute that they mimic their parents, and we even see it onto adulthood. How many times have you said or done something and heard your spouse or one of your siblings say to you, that is just like your mother. That is just like your father. If I say that to my mom about her mom, I'm glad it's over the phone and not in person. (laughs) Now at this point in the ministry of Jesus, as we've seen through the gospel of Luke, the 12 apostles who were chosen by Jesus in Luke chapter 6 have witnessed some amazing and very powerful things. It's believed at this point that the apostles have been with Jesus for around a year. And we get the idea from all that we've read that the 12 apostles never left his side, especially Jesus' three closest associates, Peter, James, and John. They've heard him preach to thousands upon thousands of people with amazing authority. They've seen the power of Jesus over weather patterns and sickness and disease. They've seen the dead raised to life. They saw demons cower when Jesus came. And as they came in fear, he cast them out of those that they inhabited. For an entire year, the apostles have experienced some of the most amazing occurrences in the history of humanity. And all along, we will see this morning that Jesus is preparing them. He is training them. 
that they might learn and grow and develop into the men who would eventually become the courageous spreaders of the Christian religion that we see later in the book of Acts and beyond. So much of what Jesus did with the apostles is very much like what we do as parents. Teaching, encouraging, correcting, letting them fail time uh, every now and then that they may be helped. And now he's going to be sending them out on their first mission. So far, the apostles have assumed that they were to become the cabinet members of Jesus' coming kingdom. He would be the reigning king and they would be his sidearms. What the apostles didn't recognize at this point was that the kingdom of Christ had been inaugurated at his coming. And it was far different from what the faithful Jews had always assumed it would be. And their role was going to be something far different. And indeed, it would be far more important than what they had actually expected. So what we see in our text this morning is the first big task that Jesus gives to the 12 apostles. The first time they would step out on their own, trusting all that the master had shown them and told them that was true and that his means and methods would be sufficient for the task ahead. So first, let's look at the power and authority given to the apostles, beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 9. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So Jesus had called his apostles together and he had given them power and authority over demons and disease. He's given them force and he's given them the right to use it. In a single instant, the apostles have gone from being observers of the miraculous work of Jesus to now participating in the very same works that they have so many times already witnessed. It's as if Dad had just handed them the keys to the car for the very first time and said, run down to the store and get your mother some milk. We've watched, we've trained... We've helped, and now the time has come to set them out. For the first time, Jesus has endowed his apostles with his power and his authority. Likewise, he's very specific as to what they were to do. In verse 2, proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. And verse 6, you will notice, tells us exactly what that preaching was to preach the gospel and to heal everywhere. So the sermons that Jesus had preached were now theirs to preach. The demons they saw cast out were now their responsibility. The bodies they saw healed were now in their hands. This was kingdom power. This was God's power given to them by Jesus. Imagine what it would have been like for the apostles They heard the evil spirits cry out when they cast them. Begging them to move on. Begging them for mercy just as they had with Jesus. How amazing would it have been to have the power to touch a sick man or woman or child and to make them well instantly. Near death and then the touch of their hand made well. Imagine. 
Imagine the ability to take people who were cast out of their community because of their uncleanliness from disease and to heal them from their infirmities, making them physically well, restoring them to their relationships with other people. Now, no doubt, if you think about what this must have done within the apostles, it could have very easily served to puff them up with pride and self-righteousness. And yet, they very much understood that the power that they had was not their own. It was Christ's power. It was something given to them by Jesus. Therefore, it served to humble the apostles, to recognize that they, on their own, were capable of very little but able to do marvelous, life-changing things by the power of God. Now, perhaps you have had opportunity before to help someone in great need, providing for them physically, giving them some kind of spiritual counsel. And when you see that you've been able to restore some sense of hope and relief, it's amazingly encouraging. But I hope that when that happens... Our response is, thank you, God, for giving me the opportunity to be used by you in such a way. Thank you, God, for blessing me with the desire and the ability and the means to honor Christ in this situation. Not to be puffed up, but to be humbled. It's a humbling thought to consider that through what God had given us in the power of the gospel message, the hope of his covenant promise in scriptures, and the desire for obedience to seek the welfare of others that we can play a part in the restoration of body and soul. But we must recognize the very same thing that the apostles recognized. It's not by our power. It's not by our ability. It is only through that which Christ has provided Now, something else that's very important for us to remember here is what Jesus sent them out to do in its entirety. You see, the apostles had this extraordinary power to do some incredible physical works by their hands, but far greater and far more important was that which those works served to point to, namely the proclamation of the kingdom of God. You see, their real work wasn't actually the healing and the exorcism. As important, as wonderful as that was. No doubt they were doing something amazing and helpful and life-giving, but that was only a means to serve the greater purpose, namely the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Luke 11.20, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I'm often asked what the Bible means exactly by that phrase, the kingdom of God. What is that? What exactly does that mean? It's a big question, certainly worth our consideration, but at its most basic level, the kingdom of God is the reign of God, the sovereignty of God. And so the proclaiming of the kingdom of God by the apostles was the proclamation that God reigns, that God is sovereign, And very much that God is near to all. The apostles were commissioned to tell men and women and children that they were under the reign of God and that they could enter the kingdom as loyal subjects and inheritors of the king's glorious riches 
or they would be shut out eternally. They were to tell of the great benefits that are available to all who turn to God. Good news, the kingdom has come. Good news, the king is here. Now, while they certainly didn't understand what they were saying in its entirety about the kingdom of God, to the ears of a Jewish people who had so long awaited the coming of the kingdom, it certainly was good news. That is, until we will find, until they realize that the king and his kingdom are not what they've assumed all along. Now, friend, as you consider your own life, do you see yourself as a loyal subject of God or are you his enemy? Have you submitted yourself to the king's ways, to the power and authority of Christ as Lord? Or are you seeking to live upon yourself? Are you seeking to live for your own glory? The command of the king is to repent of your sin, to believe on the gospel of Jesus Christ, entering into the kingdom of God and finding your rest and comfort and joy in the kingdom of God. Have you willingly bent your knee to the king of the universe? If not... The Bible is very clear that one day you will do so unwillingly to your own destruction. In the end, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so I plead with you, friends, submit yourself to our King. Far greater it is to know of His grace and mercy and kindness than to be a recipient of his just and righteous wrath. Let's continue in verse 3. He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, Jesus had in mind a specific way that the apostles were to go and do. So that the central focus of what they were doing was the ministry of the kingdom of God. We know that it wasn't Jesus' intent to communicate that those who bring the gospel to others are to do so without provision. Later on in chapter 22, he's going to send them on another mission, but this time he will tell them to bring a purse or a money satchel. But at this point, much like what we see in the Apostle Paul in some of his journeys, the goal was to differentiate the apostles from the false teachers of various religious and philosophical backgrounds whose sole purpose was to make money. So the apostles traveled very light. That's an understatement. If you break it down, he tells the disciples to simply go with the clothing on their backs and nothing more. No money, no resources, no extra clothes. Just go as you are. Now, there's something else very significant about what the Lord is commanding here. He's teaching the apostles. What is he teaching them? That they can trust in God's provision. 
absolute, unshakable faith in Jesus was the hallmark of the apostolic ministry. And as we see at the Last Supper of Jesus, he's speaking with his apostles, and he asks them if they have lacked anything when he has sent them out. And their response was nothing. And so he tells them now, when you get to a town, find a home to stay in and stay there. Don't try to find better arrangements, but be content with what is provided for you. They weren't to be seekers of comfort who lived as fat cats on a high horse. They were to live a life that is utterly committed to Jesus and recognizing that sometimes that is a very uncomfortable life. That's a challenging word for all of us, myself included. It's pretty easy to say that the Christian life will be uncomfortable when you're living in a nice house with a nicely manicured lawn and riding around in a well-functioning vehicle on a full stomach. But the value of a Christian life and ministry is not measured by how we suffered and how much discomfort we endured, but instead whether or not our hearts were content with what God provided, thankful for what we have and willing to give it all up for the sake of Christ. We're not called to live as the ancient aesthetics. These were a group of men who did some outrageous things to bring suffering and discomfort upon themselves purposely to somehow show that they really love Jesus. That's foolish. The question is, what is in your heart? Are you content with what Jesus provides and with how he sends you into the world to live for his glory day by day? You know, one way we as Americans can determine this is by considering our debts, our personal debts, our national debts. Are we stretched so thin financially that we can't pay for anything, but we have the latest and greatest of everything that comes out? We're the richest of people in the world, and yet we struggle with the greatest of debts. Are we coveting our neighbor's circumstances and going into further debt to keep up with the Joneses? If so, we really have to question whether or not we trust God and whether or not Jesus is satisfying to us. Now, I get it. It's, it's really, really difficult to live faithfully in this area in our culture. Unknowingly, we all assume certain things are absolute needs when the reality is that we're just spoiled. (laughs) And so it's an important question for each of us to consider. God's not against us having things, but when those things in turn have us, there's a problem. Can I go out into the world day by day, trusting in Christ alone? Is Jesus enough? Now, after the resurrection of Jesus, we even see the apostles themselves struggling with this. Remember, they were very defeated in their hearts. Jesus, they thought, was gone. They thought the good days were over. So what did they do? Most of them went back to what they knew before. They went fishing, completely dejected. 
They essentially picked up where they left off when Jesus called him, called them to follow him three years earlier. And it wasn't until Jesus calls to them from the shore in his resurrected body and reminds them of his task, his provision, that they set their hand to all that they were called to do. No one can read of the later works of the apostles and tell me that they didn't trust God's provision. We will struggle with this more than most. To whom much is given, much is required. Do you trust God's provision? Do you believe that he will truly meet your every need? He promises that he will never leave us. He promises he will never forsake us. When we ask for bread, he will not give us a stone. When we ask for a fish, he will not give us a serpent. He has every hair on our heads numbered and has proven himself time and time and time again to be faithful to each and every one of us. Can we trust him with our most basic of needs? This is the very thing that Jesus was teaching the apostles. Now, notice something else in verse 5. Jesus tells the apostles that should they encounter hostility in this journey, that they are to shake off the dust from their feet as a testimony against them. What is this all about? Well, when ancient Jews would travel from, uh, they would come back into their region from outside of their own. They went to pagan Gentile regions And before they returned to their home, they would symbolically shake the dust off of their shoes and out of their clothing. It was a means of communicating that they were not associated with the pollution of the people who lived in these other lands. It was a sign also of the judgment that was to come upon them. But rather than simply recognizing this as a sign of judgment, we should also see this as a dramatically gracious warning. It was a merciful act to to make the people of each town who rejected the apostles consider their spiritual condition. In much the same way today as the disciples of Jesus Christ, the church must wisely identify when the dust should be shaken from our feet to warn of eternal judgment, to call the lost to repentance. There are times when we must very clearly disassociate ourselves from sinfulness in our society. When we must sound the warning about false teachers who are wolves seeking to devour Jesus' sheep. And when we must reassert yet again that indeed Jesus is Lord and no man, no institution, and no ideology will ever change that. It falls harshly on American ears to say that there are times when dust must be shaken from our feet. It's the very thing that Jesus calls his people to. It is a very important work of the church. We read on in verse 6, And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Think of the effect of what Jesus did in giving such power and authority to the apostles. It surely would have garnered a massive amount of attention. It would put weight into the claim that the kingdom of God had come, surely. They preached with only the clothes on their bodies. They asked for nothing 
and they have no thought as to where they would sleep each night. They simply show up and hope there's a place for them. And then they dramatically illustrate the judgment of God against those who reject the great message of the gospel. Everything they had to say and everything that they did emphasized the importance and the greatness of the message that they proclaimed. Normal, ordinary, everyday men were all of a sudden endowed with incredible power and authority. And as they went through the villages preaching the gospel, healing the sick, casting out demons, I assure you heads were turning. Questions were being asked. Take note here the high value that Jesus places on the preaching of the gospel. All throughout the Bible, we see a very high value placed upon Bible preaching. But right here is a specific command that the Lord Jesus has given to his apostles. I hope you realize that preaching is God's chosen instrument for awaking the spiritually dead to give them new life. By the preaching of the gospel, sinners are saved. Those within whom the Spirit is at work hear answers to their questions. The saints of God are built up and encouraged and exhorted. The preaching of the Word of God is the single most important task within Christ's church. The greatest gospel victories have all been won from the pulpits of Christ's churches. And we speak of preaching as a means of grace. We use that phrase for a lot of different things, but this is one of the most important. Think of those words, means of grace. Preaching is a means by which the grace of God is communicated And given to God's people. In other words, it's more than simply sitting and listening and then leaving and saying, that was nice. It's very much the same in partaking of the Lord's Supper. That is so much more than simply symbolically eating some bread and drinking some wine. It is a means by which God, the Holy Spirit, brings sinners to repentance. He encourages and exhorts the people of God. It's the primary uh, appointed means that God uses to bring about his decree. And we see right here in this passage that Jesus has placed a very high value on the preaching of the gospel. No work that is done by the people of God should be void of the preaching of the gospel, lest we be relieved of the only power and authority that we have. Romans 1.16 tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not feeding the poor, not clothing the naked, not healing the blind, the gospel. All of these are very important tasks of the church. But like the apostles, these tasks only serve the greater function, the preaching of the gospel, that by the power of God, sinners would come to repentance and his people would be renewed, encouraged, and exhorted. 
And so why would we want to be primarily focused on anything else? Our utmost responsibility as a church and as a people of God is to focus all of our efforts on the gospel. I want us to recognize something else here. Jesus very clearly identifies what preaching does in the instructions that he gives. Perhaps you see it. The threefold function of the preaching of the gospel is evident in this passage. The preaching of the gospel either creates faith, confirms faith, or it furthers one's condemnation. Proclaiming the kingdom of God through the villages and healing the sick and casting out demons was at work to point to the gospel that would bring about new faith. The faith of the apostles was certainly confirmed and increased. And Jesus clearly identifies that there will be those who outright reject it, only furthering their condemnation. And so there are new believers coming to faith through this work. The faith of the apostles is strengthened. And the condemnation of sinners is furthered. So you see the work of the apostles in great power and authority. And Luke points us to the fact that it was starting to get some people's attention. And we see this through the eyes of Herod. Let's finish out with verses 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, notice Luke tells us that Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. Well, what was happening? Ordinary, everyday men who've been following this strange man around doing extraordinarily divine things. And now in the midst of it all, the name of Jesus continues to pop up over and over again. Who is this guy? We see several times throughout the Gospels where people assume that Jesus was someone other than the Messiah. Perhaps he was a resurrected prophet or John the Baptist raised from the dead. Perhaps Elijah, who because of the wording of Malachi 4.5 was assumed to have to return to inaugurate the age to come. So Herod the Tetrarch, along with the rest of Galilee, was very curious. And Herod asked, Who is this about whom I hear such things? And this is where gospel preaching should always lead us, right? Tell me more about this Jesus. You see it in the works of the apostles. When they finish preaching many, many times throughout the scriptures, those within within whom the Spirit was at work would stick around and ask, Tell me more. Tell me more. If anything we do, or if anything we are as a church, gives people the impression that we are about anything other than glorifying God by making known his absolutely essential truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we have failed in our task and we are no longer a church of Jesus Christ. 
Being members of the kingdom of God will certainly change every aspect of our lives. We will know God's design for marriage. We will know God's design for parenting and how to organize our finances. You name it, the Bible will give us the necessary principles to walk in a way that is pleasing to God and that is most helpful to us. But listen, we're not here to make your marriage better and your parenting more effective or your finances more in order. Primarily, those things are all residual effects of what we are here for, namely to make Jesus Christ known, to help you see him and to love him and to cherish him and to live your life in such a way that he is glorified day by day by day. I'm in no way against marriage classes and parenting classes and counseling and seminars and books that teach us about all sorts of things. I'm not saying that. But it is so easy for these things to become the focus. And when they become the focus, we've lost our true focus altogether. The crucial question in apostolic-styled preaching should always come to who Jesus is and that he is coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. And all of this speaks to those great words of Jesus when he said in John fourteen twelve, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. When we are faithful to do as Christ has called us to do. When we preach Christ and him crucified as the only remedy for sin and the only true and righteous king of all things, there is a sense in which God's people do greater works than Jesus did on earth because though it is an incredibly great work for Christ to regenerate and save sinners' souls, it is even a greater work when he does it through the preaching of his frail church. What grace, what privilege that we have as God's people to proclaim the glory of the gospel and to see sinners saved by his power. What power. And so we must pray that God would be pleased and that the power and authority of the gospel that he has given to us will be used well and that through us he would do great and marvelous works to glorify the risen Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Dear God, we are so grateful. We're so grateful that you have revealed to us yourself in your word, that we have the scriptures to turn to and see what true power is in our life, in our day, to recognize that true power and true authority rests in the gospel, in the great truth that Jesus Christ came and dwelt in the flesh and lived a perfect and sinless life and died a horrendous sinner's death, receiving the full wrath deserved by his people being put in the grave 
to be raised again on the third day. He would ascend to the right hand of the Father to reign eternally. Father, we delight that we have the joy, the privilege, the opportunity to call sinners to repentance, that they would place their faith in Jesus Christ, and that we have the great joy and opportunity to see sinners do that very thing, to recognize that their sin is placed on the cross with Christ, and that his righteousness is granted to us. That we can delight that he who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to see and to know what the apostles saw and knew. That all power and all authority that you've given to your church comes not from our abilities, from our ability to craft words, but our power and our authority comes from Jesus Christ, the King of all, the ruler of all. And I pray, God, too, that you help us as the apostles to trust in your provision to not look to things, to not look to people, to not look to institutions and ideas, but to look only to Jesus Christ as the sole provider of life and life abundant. Father, help us to rest in you, our provider, our sustainer, You love us, you care for us, your word tells us. And so we pray, God, that you help us, no matter our circumstances, to trust that you will give us what you have promised. And Lord, we pray that the work of your word, by the Holy Spirit, awakening sinners, would be done in our midst even today. That any here this morning who are dead in transgressions and sins, would be awakened by the Holy Spirit from death and given new life in Jesus Christ, that in them, through them, you would be glorified all the more. Please do that work that we might rejoice and that Christ would be honored. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.